Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I intend to cover in this audio Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28, which will finish up the chapter. We are on the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas, Mark having left the team at Perga earlier. Paul and Barnabas have already progressed through Pisidian Antioch, Lystra, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and this, they had just been kicked out of Lystra when some Jews from Antioch, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium came down there and convinced the people of Lystra that Paul and Barnabas were not gods, Zeus and Hermes, as they as was originally thought, convinced them that they were evil people and they stoned Paul, left him for dead. The disciples gathered around, prayed for either his healing or his resurrection, depending on how bad off Paul was, and Paul gets up and they head out of Lystra for Derby. So this is where we are now in Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. After they, Paul and Barnabas, had evangelized that town, that's Derby, and made many disciples, they had better results there in Derby than Lystra, they returned to Lystra and then back to Iconium and then back to Pisidian Antioch. And later on, we'll see in this last part of the chapter 14, they'll end up going back to Pargar. They're retracing their steps, in other words, and going back to Antioch of Syria. So they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, that's Pisidian Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Well, now, first of all, Paul had warrant to say that about passing through many troubles on his way into the kingdom of God. He had just been stoned and left for dead at Lystra. And, of course, in all of the towns, the Jews had harassed, and it was a progression. I think it was in Pisidian Antioch, they insulted him. In Iconium, they threatened him with assault. And in Lystra, they actually did it. They stoned him to death. So things had gotten worse and worse and worse as they went on. But the results were glorious. People came into the kingdom. Now, on their way back, it says that they were strengthening the disciples in verse 22, Acts 14. How did they strengthen the the disciples? By encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, notice there there is a possibility here of not continuing in the faith. How many Christians do you know? that don't continue in the faith. I just met some of them. They were going to a Bible study when I was in high school before I was committed to the Lord, and I just have run into several of them here 50 years later. They're not continuing in the faith, if they ever believed to start with. Of course, there's always that question. But my point is the disciples realized that persecution could force people to backslide, and so they were encouraging them, look, 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 things are tough, but continue in the faith even when you have many troubles on your way into the kingdom. Now, notice this verse. I like to quote this verse a lot because life is hard. A lot of people going through hard times, and I say, look, it's necessary to pass through many troubles, but you do get into the kingdom, don't you? On your way into the kingdom, that's the result. You're going to get there. It ain't going to be easy on the way, but you are going to get there, and Jesus is with you every step of the way. This idea of the disciples strengthening, the apostles to strengthen the apostles strengthening the disciples on the way back shows that it doesn't really do much good to evangelize people and leave them without growth. Churches have to be strengthened and encouraged. And the apostles did that. They encouraged their converts. They didn't just start churches. We think of apostles as those who go out and evangelize and start churches. And of course, that's their main function. But they also strengthen the churches that they do start. Now, notice by returning to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch to strengthen those churches, this shows that Paul and Barnabas truly had guts, as Adam Clark points out. 
They were returning to cities that had persecuted and stoned them, and yet they went back. I imagine they probably kept their heads low. They weren't stupid. They were brave, but they weren't foolhardy. And they went back not to the synagogues, but to the churches that had already started. Apparently, Derby didn't give them any persecution. They just had a lot of converts there. But of course, Lystra had stoned him, stoned, stoned Paul at least, not Barnabas. Acts 14, verse 23, when they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, the they is Paul and Barnabas. They had appointed elders, and that sounds like it was Paul and Barnabas who were doing the choosing. Now, this is controversial. The NIV Study Bible takes the, the participle there, keratinacentes, and says that there are three possible meanings from the Greek. First meaning, stretch out the hand. Second meaning, appoint by show of hands. Third meaning, appoint or elect without regard to the method. Now, the way it's phrased, it sounds like the apostles did the appointing, the stretching out of the hands, the appointing by show of hands. They elected, they chose the elders. But that is not the way that many commentators take it. For example, Adam Clark says that what happened was is that the people in the church chose their elders and then the apostles came by and recognized and agreed with the previously made choice. Here's his quote. I believe the simple truth to be this, that in ancient times the people chose by the keratinia, lifting up of hands, their spiritual pastor, their spiritual elder. Now, of course, Clark is saying single elder. We know that in the early church there were more than one elder. There were plural elders. But leaving that aside, Clark goes to say the people chose their spiritual pastor, their spiritual leadership, and the rulers of the church, whether apostles or others, appointed that person to his office by the kerathesia, or imposition of hands, and perhaps each of these was thought to be equally necessary. So the church elects, and then the other elders appoint by laying on of hands, or either the apostles appoint. The church agreeing in the election of the persons, and the rulers of the church appointing by imposition of hands the person thus elected. So Clark says the people choose, the church chooses, and then the elders, and then the apostles ratify that election. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown who says the same thing. Literally, referring to Kerenesantes, literally chosen by a show of hands. But as this would imply that this was done by the apostles' own hands, many render the word, as in the King James Version, our version, ordained. Still, as there is no evidence in the New Testament that the word had then lost its proper meaning, which was chosen by the show of hands, and this is beyond its meaning in 2 Corinthians 8.19, which verse I'll read you in a minute, as there is indisputable evidence that the concurrence of the people was required in all elections to sacred office in the early ages of the church, and I don't know what evidence that is, but I'm just taking his word for it, it is perhaps better to understand the words to mean when they had made a choice of elders, that is, superintended each choice on the part of the disciples. In other words, the church chooses, the apostles ratify. And that's pretty good authority, at least from commentators, and that's kind of, that's, since I like those commentators, because that's what I, I, I believe too. Especially when you look at this other verse I told you I was going to look at, Second Corinthians 8.19. And not only that, but, and it's referring to Titus, but Titus was also appointed by the churches. There's that word again, keratonea. Titus was also appointed by the churches to accompany, that's keratoneo, I'm sorry, I used the wrong Greek word there. I appoint keratoneo, keratoneo, 
Titus was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gift that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and show our eagerness to help. So Titus was chosen by the churches. It doesn't mean he was ordained and appointed like an elder, like an apost- like a like an elder in a church. He was just chosen. He was elected by the churches. So that's what we're going to say here is that Paul and Barnabas went back to all the churches in Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and ratified the choice that the believers had made. Now, notice that they, this missionary journey is not but it's less than three years, two to three years long. I'm going to use the NIV study Bible's chronology. This is not known exactly. They said 46 to 48 will cover the first missionary journey, so we'll assume that. So we're talking about between two and three years this whole journey lasted, so Paul and Barnabas could not have been away that long, I mean, at the most a year, I think, before they ended up recognizing elders. And this shows that elders is a relative term. It doesn't mean there's no magic age at which one becomes old enough and mature enough to lead a church. Now, if you have the choice, believe me, the older the better, the more wise, the wiser the better, the more experienced the better. But when you don't have that option, and you've got a bunch of young people in the church, or young Christian people, or young spiritually spiritually young people in the church, you find somebody who's got more maturity and let them be the elders. Because you got to have leadership in a church, folks. I can tell you with sad experience, that's an absolute necessity. Now, again, that's balanced off. Paul says don't lay hands suddenly on any man because you got to watch, their, watch them to make sure that they are mature enough to lead the flock. So it's kind of a tension here. You do the best you can with what you got. And isn't that generally the case? We're always short of gifts and giftings in order to really run the church the way we want it to see it operate. Now, the NIV has an interesting marginal note here. Instead of saying they appointed elders, they say Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, which is kind of a stretch, I think. And in the margin, they have a textual quote that says, or Barnabas ordained elders, or Barnabas had elders elected, which is very strange to me. Why would Barnabas do it without Paul? I don't know. Notice now that, oh, let's take up this word elders. They had appointed elders in every church. Now, that sounds like every church had plural elders, which we know from history and from reading the other scriptures is very, very, very easy to prove that there is no the pastor. The pastor. I mean, when the apostles wrote letters to the church, they never wrote to the pastor. They wrote to the apostles and to the brethren and so forth, to the elders, not the apostles, I'm sorry. They wrote to the elders and to the brethren. They never wrote to the pastor. So we know that there were plural elders in every church. But you can read this first and make it sound like they had appointed elders in every church, meaning that they picked one elder for Lystra, Lystra, one elder for Iconium, one elder for Persinian Antioch, and therefore they appointed elders, plural. That's not what the verse means. It means that every church had had its group of plural elders in each church. That's extremely important. You don't want to have a one man in charge, too much authority. It'll go to his head a lot of times or too much responsibility. You'll wear him out. He needs help. He needs counsel. He needs prayer. You know, you got to have plural leaders. That's why the early church did that. By the way, this idea which I just had that, which I just stated that elders didn't have to be brand, would, in this case, would have to be brand new converts, which kind of cuts against Paul's idea of lay hands suddenly on no man. Adam Clark backs me up on this. He said he says that the elders in the case in this case had to be brand new converts. Now you could say, well, this is a unique situation. The church has just gotten started, 
And that's kind of what I said. You know, if you, you do what you have to do, mainly but when you end up in a more mature situation, we have Christians who a church has been there longer, Christians who are more mature, then you don't lay hands suddenly on no man. You wait until you find a mature person. Now, notice that Paul and Barnabas, as they go about recognizing these elders in every church, they're praying with fasting. They're fasting again. Remember, they started out this mission journey in Acts 13, 1 and 2. They started out by fasting. In Acts 13, 2, we read this. As they were ministering, that's the five brethren there in Antioch, not the whole church, but five brethren, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work, as they were fasting. And now they end the missionary journey with fasting on their way back. It seems to me this is a good example for those involved in mission work. It wouldn't hurt to fast because mission work is very difficult. I've watched professional missionaries. I, I guess I myself did missionary work in China, I guess. I wasn't a professional missionary. I was a college professor, but I was doing that kind of work. But I watched the professional missionaries over there. And let me tell you, it ain't easy. It's not easy at all. And it was certainly not easy for Paul and Barnabas. So they fasted. But now I ask you a question. Paul and Barnabas fasted. But Jesus' disciples did not fast. What's the difference? Now, I'm asking the question. I, ha I don't have the answer. I don't know why. I know there's, there's not a command to fast in the New Testament. Jesus' disciples didn't fast, and so it's certainly an option. And Paul did fast, and Barnabas did fast, so it's obviously an option. But it seems to me like it's a pattern in doing mission work, so not a bad idea to do it. Now, notice that after they ordained the elders, recognized the elders, and prayed with fasting, they committed the churches to the Lord. Commit means to entrust them to the Lord. They had to leave them and say, all right, we can't, we can't help you. We might not ever see you again. Who knows? So, Jesus, take care of them. And you guys, we're turning you over to Jesus so that he can take care of you. Now, that's hard. You know, it's hard for parents to let their kids go. It's kind of proverbial how parents don't like to let their kids go. You can't stay with your children forever, though. You've got to let them go at some point. They've got to walk on their own. And Paul and Barnabas had to leave these, these baby churches on their own so they could grow up in the Lord. And they did. And it worked because now the church is everywhere. The church did not die out. We move on to Acts 14.24. Then they passed through Pisidia. That's the province in which we find Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. That was the province. Or at least, at least that's where... Antioch and Iconium were. I think Lystra and Derby were in the next province over. Cilicia, I can't remember. Doesn't matter. They left Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia, which is the province on the coast, due south of Pisidia and Antioch, to the east of Lycia, which is a jutting promontory of the Anatolian landmass there. And it's at the head of the bay there. And Perga, the Pamphylia was that province there. Pisidia was about 120 miles and 50 miles wide, right north of Pamphylia, and both Pisidia and Pamphylia were full of bandits, which again shows how dangerous what the disciples, you wonder if they're carrying a handgun. <laughs> so I bet they carried knives. They were, they were uh, in danger of being robbed. And of course, Pisidian, Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch is different than Syrian Antioch. They went through Pisidian Antioch, in the middle of Pisidia. And remember, Pisidia is right dead center of the Anatolian landmass, the landmass of Asia Minor. If you look at Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, there's three broad regions, Asia in the west, Galatia in the center, and Cappadocia in the east. Galatia is right in the middle, and Pisidia is a province right in the middle of the Galatian region. But, Pisidian, but, but Syrian Antioch is where the famous church of Antioch was, where Paul and Barnabas started out from. We need to distinguish those 
two cities. So they came down to Pamphylia, which is the province on the coast, and they came to a town called Perga, which they had come through on the way up. They're retracing their steps. They had not preached in Perga. It was five miles inland and 12 miles east of an important seaport called Atalia, and Atalia is where they're going to sail from to get back to Syrian Antioch. We go to Acts 14.25. After they spoke the message in Perga, they went down to Atalia. It doesn't say whether anybody got converted in Perga. Luke doesn't tell us. But we know on the way up, they didn't preach at all. For some reason, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said they didn't preach the word on the formal visit. He quotes a com- earlier commentator named Housen to speculate why they didn't preach on the way up. If this journey were taken in May and earlier than that, the passes would have been blocked up with snow. So the point is they probably did this in the late spring or summer when all the snow had melted because it was mountainous passages passages on the way up from the coast up to Pisidian Antioch. This would account for their not staying at Perga, whose hot streets are then deserted. Men, women, and children, flocks, herds, camels, and asses, all ascending at the beginning of the hot season from the plains to the cool basin-like hollows on the mountains, moving in the same direction that was on the way up north with our missionaries. Well, that's a good speculation. Well, at any rate, they preached in Perga and went down to the port town of Natalia, and headed back home on the Mediterranean Sea, Acts 14, verse 26. From there, that's from Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Now, Antioch is not Pisidian Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch, and this is a big, big city. In fact, it was the third city of the Roman Empire, a very strategic place to have a church. The first city of the Roman Empire was Rome. The second city was Alexandria in northern Egypt. And the third city was Antioch here in Syria. It was 15 miles inland from the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. The first largely Gentile, not completely, but largely Gentile church was there. So that's why it's key, because Jerusalem was the predominantly Jewish church, and Antioch was the predominantly Gentile church. Paul launched all three of his missionary journeys from there, and that's appropriate. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, is he not, even though he was the Hebrew of Hebrews? Syrian Antioch is on the Orontes River, which runs up through between the Lebanon and anti-Lebanon mountain ranges, up through present-day Lebanon, ancient Phoenicia, and then it takes a sharp bend to the west as it heads out into the uh, into the Mediterranean Sea, and Antioch is on the river up there, so it was in a key spot, key east-west intersection point. It had a large colony of Jews and Jewish proselytes, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say even though it was predominantly a Gentile church, a lot of Jews there. Luke tells us in verse 26 that Antioch was where the, Paul and Barnabas had been entrusted to the grace of God. How were they entrusted? Acts 13:1 and 2. In the church that was at Antioch, that's Syrian Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's five brothers, two of whom were sent out. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. So they were sent out by the church at Antioch, and they were received back to the church at Antioch, which we'll read about in verse 27, Acts 14. After they arrived and gathered the church together, Paul and Barnabas said, Come here, guys, we've got some news to tell you. They reported everything God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now this mention of the door of faith being opening to the Gentiles is important because remember Jewish Christians still had trouble believing the gospel could go to Gentiles and Paul and Barnabas says look we got proof 
Not only has Peter gone to Cornelius' house and witnessed it to the Jews in to the Gentiles in Caesarea, we have gone out into the middle of Asia Minor and got a lot of Gentiles converted. Of course, they got Jews converted too in the synagogues, but mostly they got abused by the Jews, and you get the feeling that it was mostly Gentiles that were converted. Now, notice this reporting back. It wasn't the whole church of Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas, but the whole church got to hear the results of their mission. There's no doubt that those who don't go on mission trips love to hear about those who have gone on such trips, as people who will do even today. People go on missionary trips and come back and report to the church. People love to hear these stories. It was fitting. It was brothers in the Antioch church who had sent them out, so it was brothers in the Antioch church who are going to hear the news. So even though the whole church had not sent them out, the whole church got reported to. And this is a good pattern. You know, if you go out and do work overseas, you need to let the folks back home who are praying for you and supporting you, maybe even giving you money and stuff like that, you need to let them know what's going on. You need to give them the good news. Now, I will say this. Let me. This is a, a rabbit trail. I read an interesting short book by Amy Carmichael, famous missionary to India. And she was, I think the name of the book was Missions As It Really Is. And she got fed up by missionaries going overseas and going back and talking about, oh, how wonderful it is, people getting saved all over the place, and the churches are just booming, and the harvest is ripe, and send more money, and, you know, that kind of thing. And so she told about how hard it was being a missionary in India. And I'm telling you, I had no desire to go to India after reading that book. And that was back in the early 1900s, I think it was. It was just so unbelievably hard the people were demonically possessed everywhere they went, and they were looked down upon as crazy Christians and crazy foreigners, and I can't remember all the details, but it was terrible. Well, hey, you know, you report back on a mission trip, in my opinion, you ought to give them the good news and the bad news. Give a realistic report of what it's like. I mean, Paul did, didn't he? he I mean, we now are talking about how they, he got stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He gave the bad news as well as the good news. He says that there are lots of troubles that you're going to go through before you enter into the kingdom of God, and he told the troubles. It doesn't say he told the church here, but I bet you he did. Somebody must have told Luke, because Luke, Paul might have told Luke later, of course. That's possible, but it's not likely. I'm sure he told the church at Antioch the troubles he had as well as the, the fruit he had. Now notice Luke says that they, Paul and Barnabas, reported everything God had done with them. In other words, yeah, sure, God worked through Paul and Barnabas, but it was what God had done. Of course, they're always very careful not to say that the human ministers of the gospel are the ones who did it. They're just agents. The principle is God. We need to remember that. God had, it says, he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Luke didn't say, Paul and Barnabas had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and that would have been a correct statement, but it doesn't put the emphasis in the right place. The emphasis is, oh, God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. All mission work has got to be God-directed, otherwise it becomes a mess, a fleshly mess. We go now to verse 28, and we will finish up Acts chapter 14. And they, Paul and Barnabas, spent a considerable time with the disciples. Now, it, Luke doesn't say exactly how long that was that they stayed there in Antioch. The NIV study Bible says probably more than one year. That's a real safe estimate. Clark speculates five years from 46 to 51, and in fact, he says most of the trials and tribulations not mentioned in Acts could have occurred here in this in this considerable time period. Second Corinthians 11:23 through 27 talks about Paul going through labors, imprisonments, worse beatings, death, near death, many times, five times. He received 39 lashes from the Jews, 
Three times he was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once he was stoned by his enemies. Three times he was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea on frequent journeys. Dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. That sounds like dangers going up from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from the Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the open country. Dangers in the sea. And dangers among false brethren. Labors and hardship. Many sleepless nights. Hunger and thirst. Often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Yeah, you want to be an apostle? Look, I mean, and the only reason Paul told us about all this is because he was provoked by these nasty false apostles in Corinth who were saying he was a nothing burger. And Paul, who hated to boast, nonetheless lets us know what he went through in order to spread the gospel. It was an incredible story. He's an incredible guy. I'm telling you, I just don't see how anybody could stand the things that he stood and live to tell about it. Well, anyway, that that could have happened in that period. I don't know about that. I don't think we know exactly when all this stuff in Second Corinthians 11 happened. It apparently didn't happen all in Acts because you can't take the stories in Acts and match them up with all the events in Second Corinthians 11. But at any rate, that's Clark's speculation. Five years after they got back before the Jerusalem Council, which is coming up in the next chapter, Jameson, Foster, and Brown speculate four or five years the reason they might have spent such time with the disciples there before they went out on their second journey is they had a controversy, the Judaizing controversy, the great problem with legalism that was dealt with the Jerusalem Council in, the, in our next chapter. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that the first journey was from 46 through 48 A.D., and the Jerusalem Con Council Conference was 49 to 50. That sounds good to me. We'll take first journey 46 through 48 A.D. and then the Jerusalem Council 49 through 50. And we will take that up in our next audio. And I hope you enjoyed this one.